going to ask for everyone to read along silently um, as I read out loud. It'll be on our screen. It is uh, what we call our anthem church creed. So just read silently as I, as I read out loud these words. We believe in the Holy Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in God the Father, the Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth and of all that exists. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, of one being with the Father, very God of very God, eternal and not made, but by whom all things were made. For our salvation, he came down from heaven and became man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, was crucified and died. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And one day he will return to judge the living and the dead and usher in his everlasting kingdom. We believe in the Holy Spirit. He is the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. He is the Spirit of truth worshipped alongside the Father and the Son. He is our helper sent to guide God's people. We believe in the gospel the forgiveness of sin by, grace, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So now we live for the glory of God looking forward to eternal life in his presence in the age to come. Amen. Lord Father, we declare these words before you among ourselves, Lord. And what wonderful truths are represented in this creed, Lord. They are representative of the truth that are revealed in the word that you have given to us in your holy scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that these thoughts, these ideas, these truths would be real in our hearts and real in our minds and that they would lead us and guide us, Lord, that they would be our conviction our foundation. Lord, this is our faith. And we thank you that you have shown us these mysterious and wonderful truths to lead us, to guide us, to give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. We, uh, we put that together a while back. We call it our Anthem Church Creed. And, and what we did is that we took what is known as the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, and we smushed them together and they created a baby and we contemporized the language a little bit and that is basically what we just uh, shared right there and and the reason we do this every once in a while is for two main reasons one 
we want anyone that is here that hasn't been a part of our church to know what it is that we believe. What is it that this church stands on? So we're, we're not switching bait. We're not going to do anything. We're going to share up front what it is that we believe as a church. And secondly, it serves as a reminder to those of us who are followers of Christ, who are anthemers. It reminds us what it is, in fact, that we believe. At the end of the day, like, this is what, what we stand on. And, and among the many things that, that we were just reminded, of in this creed we are reminded of the holy spirit folks what a wonderful gift we have in the holy spirit all who've placed their faith in christ who believe in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of jesus have received what is the ultimate of all gifts and that is the reception of the Spirit of God. We now live in the days of the New Covenant. And what that means is that we now live in New Testament days. So we live this side in history of the first coming of Jesus. So we live in, in New Testament days, and, and I would say that these days are particularly filled with all sorts of blessings. We enjoy all sorts of blessings being in the New Testament period, in this new age, this new covenant age. Like, for instance, we no longer have to take these poor little cute animals to a temple to have them sacrificed on our behalf, like the way they did in Old Testament days. So I would consider that a wonderful blessing, to not have to do that on a continuous basis. That's pretty good. We don't have to take all these religious pilgrimages to Jerusalem to observe these very specific Jewish religious Old Testament holidays the way they had to do in the, in the Old Testament. Folks, you want to know why we live in a, in a new day of blessing? We don't have to avoid pork. We can eat bacon all you want. Let me say this. If not for the fact that we live in the New Testament days, Atkins diet would be an impossibility because it's only pork rinds and bacon that makes it possible to do the Atkins diet. So anyway, we don't have to avoid ham and sausage and all that. I think that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good blessing. So we're no longer under this taxing, rigid, sacrificial, Levitical, priestly, going to the temple system that they had in the old covenant in the Old Testament days. It is so much better to live this side of the cross. It's a blessing. I would way prefer to be one of God's people now than before 2,000 years ago. Way, way better blessings. And the blessing isn't that we get to eat bacon. At the end of the day, the great blessing isn't that we don't have to go to a temple the great blessing isn't that we don't have to travel to Jerusalem on these religious pilgrimages. The great blessing of the new covenant is that now we have received the Spirit of God within our hearts. God's people have had God himself, the Spirit of God, poured, poured into our very lives. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 27 God is speaking to his people, and this is in the Old Testament. For I will take you from, um, from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So he's going to cleanse his people from sin, transgressions. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Do you see that the the promise of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, that this day would come when God would pour out His Spirit into His people. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It will come about after this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Again, another Old Testament prophecy. God revealing that this day in the future would come when He would pour out His very Spirit into the lives of his people. This is the great promise of the Old Testament. This is the great blessing that was foretold of before Jesus arrived on the scene. You know that Jesus is also known as Emmanuel, right? God with us. So Jesus came. He's Emmanuel. He was God with us, right? But you know that the the promise of the Old Testament isn't God with us. It's God in us. That's the great promise that's the blessing not only God with us but God in us God within his people that's the great gift that we have received if you're a follower of Jesus this is the great blessing the great blessing that we now enjoy isn't pardon isn't pardon of sin it is the presence of God let me say that again for those of you who are of a particular stream of Christianity where forgiveness is the ultimate of God's gifts, it is not. It is not. Forgiveness of sin is not the ultimate gift that God could give you. The ultimate gift that God could give you is himself. It's himself. Forgiveness of sins just happens to be a prerequisite towards that end. The forgiveness of sins is not the ends, it's the means by which to receive what is the ultimate prize and reward. And that is that God's presence would abide actively in me, that it would be alive in me, pressing into me, pressing out of me. That's the great blessing. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul said it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, on a cross, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through Christ. And so what what that tells us right there is that Jesus, yes, Jesus came to die on a cross. Yes, Jesus came that by by the grace of God through faith, we would be forgiven of our sin. Absolutely. It is important, vital, necessary, have to have it. Praise God for the forgiveness of sin. Praise God for grace. Praise God for mercy. But that's not the end. It is so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit of God. Like so many, so many Christians now, we stop, praise God, I'm forgiven of sin, and clearly praise God for the forgiveness of sin, but we stop there when it's praise God that he has poured his spirit into our hearts. 
that the cross made it possible not only for me to be forgiven, but for me to know God intimately, personally, relationally, that I may commune with the God who created me, that his spirit may abide in me in a very real and tangible way. That is the promise that was given in the Old Testament. That is the blessing of the New Testament. That is the great gift that we now, as God's people, enjoy. You tracking? You follow? And if God's presence, and if God's presence is really abiding in us, what that means is that then the power of God is abiding in us. If you have divine presence within your soul, then clearly you must have divine power residing and abiding within your own spirit, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus himself said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So when you receive the presence of God, when you have the Spirit of God poured into you, you will have power. That was the promise that Jesus himself made. Receiving the Holy Spirit means receiving spiritual power in our lives. So let me ask you this question. If, in fact, you are a follower of Jesus, so you believe in who he is, you believe he died for your sins, you believe he went to a grave, he came up out of the grave three days later, he ascended up to heaven, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, he's coming one day to usher God's people into God's graces and presence forever and ever, you believe that. That means that the Holy Spirit has been poured into you, right? So you have access to the presence of God, you have the power of God active and alive in you. Here's the question. Should that not make us different? Should there not be something manifestly different about those of us who have the presence and the power of God in our hearts? Shouldn't there be something significantly different as compared to someone who is not a follower of Christ? Something different about our temper, our temperament, something different about our mood, our behavior, our words, our actions, something different about our priorities and our perspective. Shouldn't there be something different about my, my purpose and as I go about my business and how I do my business and what business I am conducting? Shouldn't there be something different if God's presence and power is real in me? Shouldn't I notice it in myself? And others notice it in me? Should I not notice it in you? And I think we would all say, yes. We would all say yes. So the personal question this morning is simply this. Is that real in your life? Are you different, not because you're conforming to a religious system, because you're acting Christian, but are you different because the presence of God is active and alive in you and the power of God is manifest in you and through you? Is that true of you? You know, I've, there, there's uh, very specific reasons why we're starting this sermon series. In uh, at least nine months ago, I started doing some heavy personal evaluation of my life. 
in regards to who am I and what does it mean to be a Christian and is what do I believe and how real is it and how different am I and and I particularly started walking down this road of who is the Holy Spirit and what does he what does he do in me and through me and is that real and and I started working through that and I started just really evaluating my life and my doctrine my theology my beliefs and what's real of me and in the process I've talked to many Christians fellow Christians and in the process I've evaluated as best I can the the, the state of the church in the United States and and I've come to what would what is a negative conclusion overall and that is that we are living devoid of the presence and the power of God there there's a reason why we are as stressed and unjoyful as we are there's a reason why ministry and gospel furtherance feel so taxing there's a reason why there are times that some of us, or if not all of us, doubt if we're, we're even a Christian or not. Add to that this weird contemporary church movement where if we just do certain things a certain way, the church will grow, like as if we don't even need God to grow the church. When it was Jesus himself that said, I will build my church. And I'm convinced in the United States that we are living in complete deprivation of the presence and the power of God, namely in deprivation of the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people. And the reason we're in deprivation is because we are living in neglect of him who is the gift. We're living in complete neglect of God's presence and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are living a life of independence. See, I do my thing my way, how I want, when I want, with whom I want. I strive to do all things in my own strength and in my own resourcefulness, my own ingenuity, my own cleverness, my own will. I do everything on my own. I don't need anything or anyone else. I need God, and I'll say it out loud because that's the right thing for a Christian to say, but do I really need God? Not really. My bills are paid for. I have a house that I live in. I have air conditioning. I have food on the table. There's health care. I don't feel a need, and so I live a life of independence. And, And the thing is that we do that when it comes to work. We do that when it comes to worldly things, and to make it worse, we do it when it comes to spiritual matters. As if somehow I can grow in my faith by flexing my own muscles. Like we, we, we approach our Christianity as if somehow by the exercise of my own willpower, I'll stave off temptation. This is how we approach life. And not just life, but religiously, in our faith, we approach it. I'm an island unto myself. I live a life of independence. I rely on me. And the reality is that there is no no goodness in living that way. There is no success in just relying on myself. It's only joyless because I fail myself and I fail others constantly. Right? It's joyless. It's exhausting. It's taxing. It's tiresome. And there's no joy in living a life of independence. 
And the reality is that we're not called to live a life of independence. We are called to live a life of dependence. We're called to live in dependence of the Lord, of the Holy Spirit. I'm not to depend on my own strength. I'm to depend on the power of God. I'm not to rely on myself. I am to rely on the presence of God within me. We are called to live a life in dependence of the Holy Spirit. So today, this is the sermon series that we're starting, clearly entitled Independence. And we're, we're working our way through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and who is the Holy Spirit and what is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? What are his roles? Like, how, how do I know he's in me? And, and what does all that mean? And, and I hope by, by the time we get through the end of this sermon series that we can all truthfully say that we are living a life in dependence of God, not independence of myself, but in independence of God. And what we're going to do over the next several weeks, we're going to explore the role of the Spirit in our lives and what all that means, and, and I suspect this, and I suspect that everyone in this room, most, some, most, fall into one of two camps in regard to the Holy Spirit. One, we have never studied the Holy Spirit. We really have no sense of who the Holy Spirit is, what he does. We've never really been taught. We, we've heard about it kind of, sort of, in a way, but not really. Or two, we've been taught wrong. I told you that, that at least nine months ago, I started working my way through some stuff, and I've had to challenge my own assumptions and presuppositions and what I believe to be true, and I've been challenging even my own vocabulary when it comes to talking and thinking about the Spirit of God in our lives. And I hope that over the next few weeks that you will be challenged. There, there are some places in this series where some of you are going to be like, I cannot believe he just said that. He just undid 30 years of teaching. Good, because that's what happened to me. So join me in the fun of having God teach you some stuff. I'm only now realizing that I've been adversely affected uh, from some stuff I was taught and learned when I was younger that has had to get corrected in me in regards to who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in the life of believers. So I ask that we all buckle down, that over the next few years we, we join together and we start walking down this path of understanding the role of the Holy Spirit so that we can begin to live this life independence of God as opposed to independent of God. And I hope so. I hope we walk down this path. So we begin today, right, by, by discussing the Holy Spirit. And we're going to get into the roles and w what he does in our lives. But I think before we can actually get into that, before we can discuss what the Holy Spirit does, I think we should discuss who he is. Let's get acquainted with who the Holy Spirit is is this morning. So really where we begin today is by taking a look at what is the grandest and the loftiest of all biblical doctrines and teachings. We begin today by affirming the Trinity, affirming the Holy Trinity, the three-in-oneness of God, the triunity of God. The Lord our God is one. 
one. And in a mystery way too profound for the human mind to grasp, that one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm sure if we polled everyone in here, did a quick survey, we probably would all see that we all grew up in different denominations, different churches. And I want you to know this, that there are like substantial differences between a, a Roman Catholic and a Baptist, and a Methodist, and a Presbyterian, and an Anglican, an Episcopalian, and a Lutheran. There are some massive differences of opinion. Man, we disagree on free will over predestination, pre-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, amillennialism, premillennialism, right? Covenant theology, theology versus dispensationalism. Some people are like, what are you talking about? Never mind. All right, we disagree on some major issues, the impeccability of God versus the impeccability of Christ. What does that mean? I don't know. But we disagree on it regardless. Yet, regardless of all of that, regardless of all these churches and all these denominations, you know the one unifying thread that knits us together? We all affirm the Trinity. That this is what makes us orthodox, evangelical, conservative, biblical. This is what makes Christianity Christianity. It is the Trinity. So despite all our differences, we, and we can fight, right? You can, you can baptize babies. No, you can't. You should wait till later. Regardless of where you stand on that, what unites those folks that disagree on those issues? There is one God, and that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It really is the linchpin upon which our entire faith rests and resides. So let's affirm, let's take a moment to affirm that God is one, that there is only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 39 says, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God, not a God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth, and there is no other. There is no other. Well, Rick, every once in a while you read in Scripture where it talks about, oh, and the gods of Egypt and the gods of this. They're not gods. They're false gods. Even Psalm uh, chapter 115 verse 4 refers to they're just inventions of man. They're just conjured, conjured up by the imagination of man, Shemosh and Baal and all these other gods that are false idols in the Old Testament. They're not real. They're, they don't really exist. They said that they're false. They're fakes, imposters to the real thing. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. God is speaking. He said, see now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. None. Not only that there's one, that there's a God that just happens to not be like him, there just happens to be no other God, period. He is the only one. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And it's not only that they believe, they know, because they've been in the presence of the one God. Like if, 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 if we're not going to rely on our own witness as people, at least rely on the witness of angels who've been in the presence of God, fallen angels, in this case, demons. You say, yeah, we hate him, but yeah, it's true. There's only one. 
right? So even the demons know this and shudder. And so what we got to know is that the Christian faith is monotheistic. We believe in only one God. We are not polytheistic. We don't believe in multiple gods. We're not like the Greeks and the Romans with Zeus and Athena and all these other things happening. That is not us. We believe in only one God. We worship one God, serve one God. He is the Lord Almighty, the sovereign ruler over everything, who created everything out of nothing. He is clothed in splendor. He is dressed in resplendence. His face shines glory. He's all loving, all wise, all benevolent, all merciful. And he invites each and every one of us to know his presence so much so that he says, I will take up residence within you. That's a good God. That is a wonderful God. There is nothing like God. Um, one of my favorite Christian writers is A.W. Tozer. One of my favorite books ever is, is Knowledge of the Holy. I, I think you've heard Brent mention this book before when he's preaching. I, I recommend this book to, if you are a follower of Christ, please read A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. Amazing read, amazing writer. What a gift to the church God gave us through him. And, and, and he asked a question in that book. What is God like? And he answers it, not like anything. You know, we always try to compare God to something, and it is impossible to compare God. What on earth is like God? Nothing, nothing is like God. He's completely other, completely different. That's what the word holy means. Holy means that he is unlike anything in this dimension, in this plane of existence. He is nothing like this. There's nothing here that we can use to compare to him. We use the examples and the illustrations that we do only because it's the only thing that we got, but at the end of the day, all our illustrations, our vocabulary, our philosophical categories fail us miserably because nothing is like the one and only true living God who created everything. And that God, folks, has invited you to know his presence and his power. Do you know him? Does his presence and his power, does it abide in you? So we affirm that God is one. We also this morning affirm that God exists in three persons. And this is where it gets particularly tricky for all of us. We affirm that God is Trinity. So each person of the Trinity, each member of what we call the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each member is fully God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each possess fully the, the, all the attributes of God. Each is fully God. They share the same substance, the same essence, the same nature, the same will, yet they are distinct from one another. So father is not son, son is not spirit, spirit is not father. So distinct, fully God each, but only one God. How in the world is, is that possible? And, and I've talked to enough people that I know that there are many folks 
that reject the teaching of the Trinity based on the fact that that seems like an impossibility. Like, they can't reason or logically explain how there can only be one God, and he's three, but it's only one. So how do you have three and one? Like, how does that work mathematically? How does that work philosophically? Like, like in reality, what does that look like? So people reject it simply because it's a difficult thing to understand, if not outright impossible for us to wrap our minds around it. But I would say that just because it is difficult, if not impossible, to understand does not make it any less true. For we say it often, truth is truth whether we believe it to be or not. So imagine a man is born in a cave. And all, he know, all he's known his entire life is this cave. He's never even gone to the entrance. He's never even looked beyond the entrance of the cave. He has dwelt well deep within the mountain. He's Gollum well deep within the mountain, and all he knows are dimly lit rock walls, the cave walls, where there's a little fire that just slightly illumines the space that he dwells in. And imagine that this figure, this individual from the outside world enters into the cave and finds this individual and begins having a conversation with this caveman and begin telling this man about these beautiful Carolina blue skies with their fluffy white clouds just floating across and telling him about these multicolored feathered winged creatures that just dart back and forth through the air. And this man is telling this caveman about these white sand beaches and this constant pounding of the surf from this vast ocean. And he tells them that at night, like, you haven't seen anything like millions of twinkling lights at night. And he tells them about the, the changing of the, the, the seasons and, man, the, the leaves, leaves. A new concept to this caveman. They change color. And then a few months later, everything's covered in this white, fluffy, icy, snowy stuff. And the caveman has a decision to make at that moment. Either he receives and believes the testimony of the one who is from that world, or he rejects it based on the fact I have never seen that. I can't really imagine that. Therefore, it must not be true. And I confess for myself that the, the mystery of the Trinity is beyond my capacity to understand. It, it boggles me more than any other teaching of the Bible. It boggles me more than, every, than anything else. But it does not mean that it is not true. It just means that God is higher than us, that he is greater than us. He is infinitely greater than us. He is the creator. I'm just created. There is an infinite chasm between the, the, the plane of existence that is God versus mine. So I take it at face value. I take God at his word that when he reveals that he is one and yet Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I believe it. I take it on faith. I, I can't really understand what it was like before Genesis 1-1 when there was nothing. 
except for God. There wasn't space. There wasn't blackness. Like we think of, we think of nothing as empty space out there, like it's a dark void. No, there wasn't even that. It was just God. What? I can't, I can't fathom what that would have been like. And then for God, when it's just God and nothing else to speak, and then everything else came into being. I cannot wrap my head around speaking everything out of nothing. I can't imagine that God exists in an eternal now, which he does, which means that he sees past, present, and future all simultaneously at the same time always. I know this moment right now. I don't know it anymore because it just went, but I know this one. Oh, it's gone. I don't know that moment. God knows that moment intimately like it was just right then. Everything is now for God instantly at the same time. I don't understand that. Does it mean that it's not true? It's not. Does it mean that it's not true? It is true. So I understand that I must take this all on faith. To quote again A.W. Tozer, he wrote, What God declares the believing heart, what God declares the believing heart confesses without need of further proof. What God declares the believing heart confesses without need of further proof. So this morning I ask, do you believe that God is one in three persons? Do you take it on faith because God has said so, that he is one God in three persons? And, you know, time does not permit for us to view everything that Scripture has to say, but I do want to give a little bit of support to, to why uh, we believe Jesus is God or the Holy Spirit is God, right? Because we all kind of, well, God the Father is clearly God. So we don't really question that so much. So let's kind of move on to the second and the third member of the Trinity this morning, this morning and let's see if, if we could figure something out here. So let's, let's move on to Jesus. Jesus is God the Son. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And if you read John chapter 1, it is very clear from the context of that chapter that the Word is in reference to Jesus. Jesus is the Word in Genesis chapter 1. So, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. And the Word was with God. So, Jesus was with God. And the word was God, so therefore Jesus was God, is God, right? Not a God, as some flawed translations throw in there. Not a God, God, period. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For by him, him there, very clearly from the context, is referring to who Jesus is. For by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, through Jesus and for Jesus. Well, Jesus then has to be the creator. He has to be God the creator because it says that he created all things. And so if Jesus is not God, then that means that Jesus is created. 
And if Jesus was created, then how could he have created all things? Because all things would include him who was created. So he who did not exist would have to create him to exist before he could create everything else. He's God. Revelation chapter 22, verse 13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is speaking in Revelation chapter 22. I am the Alpha and the Omega. You know that that's a divine title. That is, that is a phrase used in Scripture to refer to God. In Revelation chapter 1, it's referred specifically to Lord Almighty. I am, the be- I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. It is a divine title of the Lord Almighty, of Yahweh. And in Je- Revelation chapter 22, Jesus is saying, That's me. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So just from those three verses, and there are so many more, just from those three, it is clear that Jesus Christ is God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. And number three, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God the Spirit. The Spirit is not an it. It's he. It's not an it. It's he. He's a member of the Godhead. He's co-equal with the Father and the Son. Why else would Jesus say in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is an it, and its don't have names. So a person, and he's co-equal, Right? baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they're equals with one another. And note that he says, in the name singular, not the names, plural. He doesn't say in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. In the name, singular, one name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They don't have three names. They share the same name. It is the great I am, Yahweh, Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. He is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Consider these other names that are giving of the Holy Spirit in Scripture that can only be true of God himself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, referred to as the Spirit of grace. John 14, 17, referred to as the Spirit of truth. Romans 8, 2, he's referred to as the spirit of life. 1 Peter 4, 14, he's called the spirit of glory and of God. In Romans 8, 9, he's referred to as the spirit of Christ. So just from that, and there are more, just from that, it is clear that the Holy Spirit is God himself. It's clear. And what we have to understand is that the Bible is loud and the Bible is in that there is one God and only one God and that God exists in a mystery that we can't understand or wrap our heads around and that is that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit co-eternal, co-equal, all fully God distinct from one another all possessing the attributes of God but one God and that's what the Bible teaches and so then that leads us to this question why does that matter? Why does it matter so much whether or not we believe in the Trinity? 
And it matters because, as I said a little earlier, the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of the Christian faith. Christianity completely unravels and falls apart if this is not true. The entire, like the veracity, the truthfulness of everything that we believe falls, hinges, hangs on whether the Godhead is real or not. Let me explain it to you this way. If Jesus is not God, he cannot be the Messiah. If Jesus is not the creator, he cannot be the Savior. He cannot do it. For only God himself could pay an infinite and eternal price the way that Jesus did on the cross. Which you must understand that your sin is not just a little white lie. Your sin is an infinite offense against an infinite God. Well, if Jesus paid for my sin, for all of my sin and all of your sin on a cross, if he single-handedly took care of all that by himself, he had to be infinite himself. Only all-powerful God could withstand the righteous judgment and wrath and judgment of God. And the fact that Jesus on that cross before he closed his eyes and breathed his last breath, before he said, it is finished, he dealt with it all. He withstood it. He lived to tell about it. He just died as a final act of submitting to the will of the Father. But on the cross, it, it wasn't wrath that killed Jesus. He just gave his spirit up. He survived it. There's three hours where Jesus withstood the wrath of God infinite eternal punishment he breathed through it so he has to be god if he's not god if the trinity isn't true then we are still lost in our sin we are hopeless and scripture says that salvation is of the lord scripture also says that salvation comes by calling on the name of jesus okay the name that is above every name well what is the name that is above every name Yahweh, the great I am. So the fact that Jesus has that name, and that that's the name upon which we call for salvation, then that means that salvation is, in fact, from the Lord, from Jesus, God himself. And just imagine this, that it is this God, this all-powerful, all-loving God that he gave his life on a cross. See, this, this is what makes the Trinity so amazing to me. Like, he didn't send some agent, some emissary. He did it himself. Like, this is what makes the gospel so amazing. God took care of business on our behalf himself. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the question for, for many of us is simply, do you believe that? Do you understand that that's who Jesus is and that that's what he did on your behalf? Doctrine of the Trinity also matters because without it, then we fall into idolatry. If God has revealed himself to be a certain way, but we reject who he is and we worship him based on our understanding or our, our limited idea of what God is, then we are in essence worshiping a different God other than who he is. And A.W. Tozer, again, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. So anything less than God, anything other than God is a false idol. It's false worship. 
So it matters that we embrace the doctrine of Trinity so that we may not be idolaters, which is the most heinous and monstrous and ugliest of sins against God. But that we, we may begin to approach him as he truly is. And the doctrine of the Trinity also matters because it reveals to us the enormity of the gift that we've received. So go all the way back to where we started. The great blessing, the ultimate gift that we've received is that God has poured himself into our hearts. So if the Holy Spirit is not God, why in the world would Jesus say, it is to your advantage that I go away? If Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is not God, how in the world would it be to our advantage for him to leave and send something lesser? But that is not the case, for the Holy Spirit is God himself. God's Spirit poured out into us. And, and the reason this is such good news is, are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you heavy laden? Are you stressed? Are you lacking joy? Are you, are you lacking purpose, significance in your life? Are you, are you lacking the good news is that there is a God that says, I will offer you my presence. I will offer you my power. I will be your helper. You no longer need to live a life of independence. You can now live a life of dependence. And that, folks, is where joy is. That's the life that Jesus promised. He promised abundant life. It is a life with God's Spirit poured in us, experiencing presence and power in our daily lives. You know, in John 14, 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another helper, that he may be with you forever. The Greek word another means literally another of the exact same kind, just like Jesus. So in Greek, there's another word for another, which, another word for another, which actually means like it, but different. This particular word means, no, like it, like the same thing. It's another of the exact same thing. So Jesus said, I'm going to send you another one just like me. And that is the promised Holy Spirit that was promised in Ezekiel and in Joel and other places in the Old Testament. He is the promised helper to give us wisdom, to embolden us, to encourage us, to guide us, to convict us, empower us. You know, like in Scripture where it talks about, oh, oh feel, the, feel the peace of God, right? The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. How do you think you get that? It is through the Holy Spirit. That is his ministry to us. I feel the love of God. Guess who's doing that? It is the Holy Spirit confirming in our hearts that we are adopted children of the Most High God. Like this is what the Holy Spirit, he's our helper. This is the great blessing that we enjoy in the new covenant. He is our helper. Psalm 54 verse 4 says, Behold, God is my helper. That's exactly how the Holy Spirit is described. The Holy Spirit is my helper. God is my helper. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. How present, how present is the help of God in the life of a believer? It could not be any more present, for it is in you, active. It's alive. He's real in you. 
no matter where you go, where you are, what circumstances you you find yourself in, good times, bad times, spiritual highs, spiritual lows, the great blessing is that if you are a follower of Christ, his presence and his power is with you, and God's help is always there. Always there. And, you know, we, we talk about it often where, you know, we, we acknowledge that life is difficult. It is chock full of all kinds of problems and trials and troubles and tribulations and persecutions and all sorts of stuff. You know, we, we deal with heartache from all kinds of places and distress. And then we try to do, go through all of that just on our own. And God's like, why? Why do you settle for that? Like, it's, it could be so much better. And life will always be difficult this side of heaven. But to know that we're walking in, with God in our lives every moment, why settle for anything else? Why settle for independence where we could, like, actually elevate our status to dependence upon upon the Lord, and then, you know, to, to try to work out our Christian faith simply by muscling through it and willpower and strength and ingenuity and tricks and all that, the other, like, it doesn't work. It is God who's at work in us both to work and to will for his good pleasure. It is God who will complete the work that he began in us. So rely, depend, lean on the triune God to encourage you, empower you, lead you, give you the wisdom that you need in, in your life. Would it make any difference to you to know that God's presence is not just around you, but in you? Would it make any difference? Would it make any difference to you to know that God's power is very real within you? Would it make any difference for you to know 100% without a shadow of a doubt that there is a helper with you wherever you are? Would it make any difference in your life? And I think we would all say yes to that. Regardless of where you are in your faith, whether you're a believer or a non-believer or just became a follower of Christ or you've been one for a long time, I, I think we would understand that life has to be much better in dependence of God as opposed to on our own. And the good news this morning is that if that you can have, you can have it. God has promised that he offers it graciously. He just says, here, do you, do you want this? And if you've never received Jesus, that's where it begins. It begins by confessing Christ as Lord of your life, that he's the God who died on the cross, that you confess that you're a sinner, confess that you need the Savior, confess that he gave his life and he rose from the dead, and then commit your life to follow him. Confess, repent from living a life of independence, and then repent for that turn, and now embrace a life of dependence upon God. And when you do that, you receive God's grace and you receive the ultimate of gifts, which is the Holy Spirit, your helper. 
And if you're a, a follower of Jesus, the question is, have you been neglecting the Holy Spirit in your life? And if you have, know this, God loves you. He loves you. He knows. And you're here this morning because he's trying to waken you up out of that slumber. So just confess it to God. Confess it to the Lord. I am in neglect of you. I've been doing this on my own. And just repent of that. And embrace this gift that God has given to you. And then from here on, what do we do, folks, together? Over the next few weeks, especially as we tackle this issue, because from here on out, we're getting to what does it mean to live by the Spirit, to be filled by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. We, we, will we join together as a church family and just plow some ground here so that we come out of here? Uh, we haven't arrived by any means, but at least we're tracking in the right, the right way, that we're all living together independence of God's Spirit. Can we do that? In other words, will we commit to live as people of the new covenant? People of the New Testament. So I'm going to give everyone just a, a few seconds just to bow your heads and close your eyes where you are and for you to do business with the Lord as you see fit. You confess what you need to confess. You repent from what you need to repent of. What is it that you need to ask God's help in. Have you been neglecting the Holy Spirit? Is today the day that you receive Christ for the first time and receive the promised Holy Spirit? Gracious God in heaven, we come humbly before you at this time and we confess that you are too grand and too mysterious for us. Lord, thoughts of you are too wonderful for us. You are too profound. Lord, we can't imagine who exactly you are, Lord, for you are higher than we are, but you in grace have revealed yourself to us and you invite us to know you, to have communion with you, to draw near to you, Lord. You invite us to know your presence and your nearness is our good. Lord, you offer power and strength and wisdom for our daily living, Lord. And now, may we simply embrace that. Give ourselves over to it. Lord, may we embrace the cross that made this possible, Lord. That promise in the Old Testament was made possible through that cross 2,000 years ago. 
And we come to faith in Christ, Lord, and by your spirit grow in conformity to your son, Jesus. May we know you as our Abba Father. May we know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our daily living. Lord, you are majestic and resplendent. And we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.